0: Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to the show. My name is Don. Thanks for being here. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. You have just found the Today's Just Okay podcast. And if you are a return visitor, welcome back. Either way, I'm happy you're here. I hope you're having a good day, whether it's morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever you happen to be listening to this. How you doing? Like I said, I hope you're doing well. How am I doing? I'm doing okay. Eh, not too bad. Topic today is going to be mentorship, a sort of underrated and underappreciated tool in both professional and personal lives i think this is one of those things that we should all we should all have the opportunity both to be a mentee someone who is getting the benefit from a mentor and then later on down the road to be a mentor and help someone who's coming up behind us i think it's it's one of the most valuable tools whether or not it's in your professional capacity or your personal capacity and i definitely think that it is underutilized in both of those areas. So am going to talk about that in a little bit as well. I've got a book review for an oldie but goldie. Uh, it's called The Patron Saint of Plagues by Barth Anderson. A little bit topical, maybe a little late to the party given that it was published in 2006, but it deals with things like the emergence of a, of a pandemic and whatnot. And I find that fascinating given the, given the current context. I also think that because COVID's kind of calmed down a little bit, it's it's easier to handle something like that now than say when we were in the middle of it, right? Got another chapter read, chapter two of my book, Lancet. So more on all of that in a bit, but first I think we should warm up a little bit, get into the groove and and see how, how things progress. Also, I wanted to apologize for the audio quality in my first couple of episodes. I'm still learning how to basically do all this stuff. And I live in a very noisy neighborhood. So like the other night on a On a Sunday night at two in the morning, someone decided to roar down the street in a souped up car, some literally at two in the morning on a Sunday. Like, why would you do that to anybody? But such is life, I guess you could say. That's just how it is around here. So I am trying to balance the background noise that just exists around me and the audio quality that you guys get. And I don't think I've got the mix just right yet, but hopefully this week will be better than the last two and every week will be a little bit better going forward. I think probably I'm just gonna have to leave some of it in because it's it's too noisy in the filters that I use, whether I'm using like Nvidia Broadcast or something like that. They do a lot of weird things to the voice. You know what I mean? They, they make it sound kind of like you're in a fish tank or something. So I don't really like that sound. Anyway, I will figure it out and you don't need to worry about that. Just know that I know that it's not the greatest quality yet and I am working on it. As always, if you have questions or comments, please send them in to today'sjustok okay at gmail.com. I will get to the ones that I can that are sort of relevant to the podcast or what we're talking about or that I think are interesting or timely or whatever. And if you don't hear your your question or your comment on, on the air, you know, it just may not fit with what I'm talking about that week. So don't be shy. And in addition to that, what I would also say is that if you're enjoying the podcast, please think about subscribing and sharing it with your friends and so on, because that's the only way something like this grows, honestly, is if it gets out there. So by all means, I would appreciate it if you, you shared and shared alike, so to speak, if you think that what I'm doing is interesting. All right, moving on, we are into the holiday season now. So hopefully you are kind of prepping for that and you're going to have some time off whether or not you celebrate the sort of dominant, the dominant holiday. Um, It was funny. My wife and I were sitting on the couch the other day and we were singing Christmas songs because that's what we do. We're kind of nerds that way. She started singing, you better watch out. You better not shout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why. And then I piped in COVID is coming to town. (laughs) It's just in time for Christmas and every time we go out, I just I see more people coughing and sneezing and and just kind of dealing with flus and colds and potentially COVID and all the rest of it, right? I mean, I think the pandemic has calmed down enough that the vast majority of stuff out there is not the gnarly virus, but at the same time, it's always going to be a thing that we have to deal with, I think. And it just it just kind of sucks that we have just yet another problem to to keep in mind, right? All I would say basically is stay safe whether you vaccinate or not whether you wear a mask or not, just be sensible. If you're sick and you can, stay home. If you can't, maybe wear some protection. I mean, if I go out, if I'm, if I'm feeling gross, you know, I always wear a mask. Why do I do that? Because I don't want to spread my germs around, right? I don't want to be impolite to other people. And I think that that's kind of just a reasonable way of looking at it. You know, if you sit down on a bus or a train or something and someone is next to you hacking out their lungs and spewing God knows what into the air, you're probably not going to enjoy that. So why be that person, right? It's just needlessly confrontational. <laughs> I don't know I don't know. It's just I don't want anybody breathing my germs, and I don't want to breathe anybody else's germs. So I figure we can each each and everyone can do that uh, favor to one another without too much trouble. You know, it's funny. I was thinking also a little while ago about some of the goals that I want to set for myself. I just got enrolled in a specialized clinic. I'm going to be going well by the time this is on the air I will have already gone so hopefully it's gone well. I'm excited about it but at the same time it's it's also a little bit nerve-wracking because I don't really know what to expect. But I was thinking about goals and and what I want to accomplish in the future and that type of thing and and what I have accomplished recently and I realized it's never really too old to do something that you want to do or that you're maybe scared to do but you've never, you know, either had the time or you always have a convenient excuse. I mean I'm in my forties and I learned to drive just to give you some context. I've been in quite a few accidents as a passenger and I've been hit by a couple of cars as a pedestrian, never anything serious. Like I was never majorly hurt, no broken bones or, or anything like that, but enough to kind of put the fear of things into me. Right. So for a lot of my adult life, I just could not get behind the wheel of a car without basically feeling that anxiety, feeling that panic and not being able to progress. And a couple of years ago, I just kind of put my mind to it and said, no, I need to do this. So I wrote my first test, took my first driving test, took my second driving test, and now I'm fully licensed and relatively comfortable when I drive. I mean, there's always going to be someone pulling a U-turn in a in an intersection on a red light while everyone else is just confused. But I think having developed and practiced that skill, I can now recognize dangerous situations with relative frequency, with relative ease and, and adapt and move out of the way for them. I mean, like it's not every day that you run into a biker gang driving down the road and one of them decides to cut people off because they want to stop on the side of the road with a bunch of their buddies and literally every car on the road immediately slams on the brakes in front of you because they don't want to hit this guy and potentially get in trouble. So what do you do, right? You, you you either rear-end the guy in front of you or you pull off to the side so that you've got more room to maneuver. You know, just things like that. It's, it's interesting that probably two or three years ago, that would have turned me off to driving completely. And now I look at it and I'm like, okay, I can handle something like that. It's going to stress me out. I'm not going to be comfortable. But at the same time, I can get through it. Remember, no matter what you are feeling in the moment, your brain has a surprising capacity to manage and deal with stress and get you through. It's just a matter of pushing the right amount, not pushing too hard, not pushing too little, just kind of finding that balance between total, total fear, total panic and total comfort and just getting yourself through that component of it. So yeah, I don't know. I just, that's probably the, the most interesting thing I could think of that I've, that I've done recently that has a a positive feel to it. Anyway, I thought it'd be nice to share. So Moving into the topic of the day, mentorship, the unsung hero, in my view, of personal and professional development. And I don't think this is really a topic that has an argument for or against, right? Like, I don't think it matters what side of the aisle you are on, whether you're a progressive or conservative voice or anything like that, or whether you lean one way or the other. I just think mentorship is, generally speaking, a positive experience as long as everyone involved is approaching it seriously. I mean, if you get a mentor who doesn't care or a mentee who doesn't care, then obviously it's not going to work. But if both parties are invested in the process, it really can be an incredible experience for both sides of it. And I really do think that anyone can be a mentor and anyone can be a mentee. It doesn't matter how old you are, or how young you are. Well, I mean, you know, I don't think a four-year-old is going to be a mentor, but you know what I mean? If you have lived some time on this planet, if you have experienced some form of hardship if you have ever had to learn a skill and work a job or whatever right i don't care whether you're at the top of the chain or at the bottom of the chain if you've been around a while you've got some wisdom and sharing that wisdom can help someone avoid a lot of the pitfalls that befall most of us simply by osmosis right you get you get the benefit of someone else's experience you get their stories as well as you know your own take on it And then you then apply all those lessons, right? You take the good and leave the bad because not everything is going to hit, but what does hit, what does suit you, you're going to find to be helpful. So I'm going to talk about my own personal experience and the benefits uh, to both parties. So both the mentor and the mentee, I think why we need more of this process in everyday life and offer some tips on how to approach it with realistic optimism, make it the best experience you can get out of it. It's funny, the reason that I want to talk about this is because of a recent experience. So I wrote a letter to a kid, basically in my wife's class, she's a teacher, my wife's class, there's a kid who wants to be a writer and I'm a writer as well as a bunch of other things. But ultimately, you know, I've got some good experience with that profession. And so she asked me if I'd be willing to write a letter of encouragement just to kind of Give this kid a little bit of a hey, this is an interesting idea. This is a good thing for you to do. And so I was super happy to do that. And that's essentially what I focused on. I focused on words of encouragement that being a writer is awesome, that it's such a good idea to develop that skill set, that it opens up a lot of doors. I, I mentioned things about processes and how to practice and that type of thing, you know, what to read reading outside of your normal sort of comfort zone and just reading a bunch of everything to get a broader perspective on on stylistic differences and the ways genres change things, as well as learning from different authors and whatnot. And then just practicing writing every day or as often as you can. And it doesn't matter what it is, as long as it's something that gets words on a page and, you know, you're, you're playing with language, you're using language, you're learning words, that type of thing, right? You're learning grammar and all that. So I, I talked about that and then I gave some resources and just basically what I wanted to get across is just how excited I was for them to be starting that journey and how it's such a great thing to to go through, that that sense of discovery. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think it's necessary to do the the negative stuff now, especially in a kid who's like in grade six or seven or whatever, right? Like, I don't think it's right to try and temper their expectations at this point because they're just starting and they're going to learn that later. Right now is the important foundation building point. Build up their confidence, give them that little push in the right direction, and then see where they go with it. Because if a kid really wants to be a writer, you know, they're going to do that over time. And if we say, oh, well, you know, you got to be careful, blah, blah, blah. You know, you try to protect them, but at the same time, discourage them. What are the chances they're going to put the effort in or they're just going to say, "Oh, that was stupid," or "Oh, I shouldn't do that," or "Oh, I can't tell that person anything because they think my ideas are dumb." Right? That's why I focused on the positives. That's why I focused on just opening that door and saying, "Yeah, have at it. It's a great idea and here's some stuff that you can use to improve your improve your capacity." Again, part of the reason I said that was because when I was their age, I wished someone would have said the same thing to me. Right. My experience, like number one, I didn't know anybody who was a writer, so I couldn't ask them for any kind of help. And number two, a lot of the people that I talked to didn't have positive things to say about it because either they didn't know what the industry was about or they wanted to protect me or they thought it was a dumb idea and that I should focus on working a real job or whatever. Right. But I was a kid. I was not even like, I think I was like 12 or 13 at the time. And I didn't need to hear that then life life brings up its own problems for you eventually you're going to learn those lessons regardless so when you're a kid it's important to get that positive that positive push when my wife told me about the effect that that letter had on the on the kid it was awesome you know they were they were happy they read it they were super excited they started looking at the resources during class while they were supposed to be learning so i mean my, you know it's not exactly what you want as a teacher but you know that made me smile it made my day to know that something that i had put down was going to have a positive effect on a person and and make a little human a little bit more happy and a little bit more excited for their day-to-day experience, right? That's why I say that both parties can can benefit. What you put in, you get out of it, I guarantee you. If you do it from the perspective of helping someone and learning as much as you can, you're going to get out of it just as much as you put in. Now years ago before the pandemic, I also mentored a new professional. So Where I work, we have a very formal process of picking mentors and picking mentees. And, you know, it's been identified as an organizational requirement or an organizational goal to develop talent because I work in a unionized environment, a unionized administrative environment, which is somewhat rare these days. But one of the things that was identified in one of our many sort of annual feedback cycles was that a lot of junior people did not see how they could progress to senior level roles. And so this program was created to do that. And I mean, I was 38, 39 at the time. And, you know, I was talking to a 23, 24 year old who was literally just out of school. This was kind of their first real job, so to speak, quote unquote. I mean, every job is real, but this was their kind of career path. Right. And I think the biggest contribution I made was just presenting options. Showing that the kinds of things she could do just with what she knew and had already in terms of her degree and some of the experiences, right, opened up a lot of paths that she wasn't aware of, that she had a lot of transferable skills, that she shouldn't overcomplicate higher level positions or overestimate the requirements when the reality is, is that most people can learn most jobs with the right tool set. It's just really a matter of practice and an opportunity. And it was interesting to see because, you know, during our conversations, I could see that light bulb kind of go off in her head and she had no idea how many paths were open to her. She bluntly stated that no one ever explains that. And it really bothers me sometimes that we're not more involved in helping younger people figure out how the world works, right? There's, there's constantly news stories about how millennials or Xennials or whatever they're called now, whatever the new buzzword for the newest generation is, right? How, Oh, they're ruining this or they're destroying that. And I'm like, well, no, we were raised into this world by people. And if we are changing how things are done, the question falls on, well, who taught us what we know and why, and why are we rejecting what was happening before, as opposed to continuing on with the, with the process, right? If we're not having children, why is that? Is it because we don't want them or is it because we can't afford them right? there's there's a different way of looking at things and when you flip things around a little bit, it makes it easier to understand where someone's coming from. So it was really interesting for me. it was interesting to see that the problems that I had when I started 20 years before were exactly the same that uh, that she was now dealing with, right? And I, I mean I know that we're supposed to figure some of this out on our own, right? It's part of that personal growth business and all that. but there are plenty of people who have that advantage out of the gate. I mean, if you have parents who prep you or if you have friends or family or whatever or contacts in positions that you want to get into, you have an advantage over people who don't because you have that built-in source of knowledge. I mean, this happens all the time. So giving someone who doesn't have that a little extra pointer in the right direction is kind of awesome. It warms the heart, so to speak, right? I didn't really teach her anything specific because it was my first mentorship as a mentor. And we didn't really have a lot of time to meet with each other. Unfortunately, I got sick kind of about halfway through it. I was very open with her about that and the fact that, you know, my capacity was limited, and that if she wanted to go back to the program and get a different mentor, she probably should because they'd be more able to interact with her on a regular basis. But from what I understand, by then she was already applying for new jobs. And I think she, you know, in short order, she got a much higher paying position and is doing very well. So I'm, I'm very pleased with that, right? So even if things go wrong, they can still be a win. It's all a matter of how you approach it, how honest you are with one another. And, you know, even though I couldn't offer the level of support that I should have, just telling her that I couldn't do that and then offering her a way to remedy that, I put the ball in her court, but I gave her options, right? I didn't just say, okay, well, it's your problem, not mine. I said, okay, here's what my limitations are. If you want to you know, continue in this program with someone else. Totally cool. Happy to arrange that. But if not, if you still want to like occasionally talk to me, that's, that's fine as well. And she just kind of took off from there and, and did her thing. And really that's, that's the best thing you can see as a mentor is someone who is, you know, driven and interested picking up on, on that independent sort of, okay, I can apply this to my own life and and then just running with it and doing things that you may not expect. Right. Now, going back even further, years and years before that, I was mentored by a senior manager and it came at a good time for me because at that point I was, I was stuck in a rut at work. I couldn't get ahead. You know, I was getting burned out and angry because everything that my managers, my direct managers were telling me was just turning out to be untrue, right? Oh, you know, if you do this and this and this and this and this and this and this, eventually you're going to get ahead. And then I would do that and that and that and that and that and that and that. And I'd get a pat on the back and nothing would ever happen, right? And I think that that's one of the things that kind of sucks about working in a professional environment is that sometimes you get people who just want to take from you and they don't really know how to reciprocate or they just, they do, but they, they don't value you enough to do that. I think I need to do a bit of a sideline here because right now I work in a really good place. I work for really good people. I work for a very, in my view, important organization that does incredibly important work for a lot of people just helping helping in day-to-day lives and I want to be clear here that nothing that I'm about to say is meant as a criticism of, of where I work now because again I love the people that I work with I love the people that I work for I like the organization that I'm at I'm very happy with how it's run and what we do so these observations about the, kind of negative aspects of of people are really just, they're isolated incidents. They take place over the period roughly of like 20, 25 years. They include everything from jobs where I was just starting out to jobs that I was doing while I was in school. And they're kind of mishmashed together, right? Because I'm relying both on memory and also just trying to condense things down into a format that that works for, for the podcast. So I just think it's really important to make sure that that's clear right at the outset. So as I was saying, I was, you know, stuck and I couldn't get ahead and I was starting to get burned out and angry and the mentorship opened up. And one of the great things about the mentorship program where I work is that it doesn't really rely on your manager or rather if your manager denies you the opportunity to participate, it actually reflects poorly on them. And so, you know, I did my application and I was ready to submit it. And I went to the I went to the manager and basically said, look, you know, this is what I want to do. And they said, oh, well, you know, you can't do that, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, it's an organizational priority. And if you say no, like I'm going to take that to the union and we'll go from there. And so 15 minutes later, I had approval and away we went, right? So again, like it sucks that sometimes you have to push back against the people who should be developing you to begin with. But if you do get yourself into that position and you do have the benefit of some kind of organizational Training program, or if you do have the benefit of a union or something like that, usually there is some way to overcome those limitations. And I mean, if not, it's time to start looking for a new job or a new place to work because obviously the place you're working doesn't look at you as as a, a key component to their success. Now that mentorship really did breathe new life into me, you know, in terms of just how I felt about what I was doing, and it learned me some very important lessons. You know, one of the things that we talked about was what an employer was looking for in people, in terms of their personalities, in terms of their problem-solving abilities, how to build skill sets in necessary or needed areas, whether that's through school or special projects or work you were already doing, and just how to translate that into resumes and interviews so that people realize, oh, you can actually do more than what what's on paper. And it's a huge component that we often underestimate, the relevance, right? The relevance of our current work or our current experience, things that we've done in our private lives, things that we've done in our professional lives when applying for higher level positions. We can sometimes overestimate the complexity at the level above us. And this process gave me a much needed reality check. So I'm hoping that if you are in the same position, if you just give yourself that reminder, right, it's not out of the realm of possibility. If you can do 60% of what's on that resume, you're qualified for the job. The question is, how do you close the remainder? How do you close that 40% gap, right? That's where the creativity part comes in. And that's where the mentorship is what really kind of helps you. Um, One of the other things that the senior manager helped me do was how to identify people who are trying to keep me down. So I'd already kind of learned a bit about that because again, you're always going to run into people. So whether they're coworkers or supervisors or whatever, they're not going to want you to progress in your career for one reason or another. And I think it's just ass backwards, in my opinion, that mentality. But there are plenty of people who either feel threatened by someone coming up or they want to keep you where you are because you make their lives easy and they'll block you. They'll tell you to put in your time. They'll tell you to just keep at it. At a boy, you'll get your opportunity later, blah, blah, blah. You know, they won't write you references or they're, they won't answer calls from other managers asking about you or they'll tell them that, you know, oh, you're not a great worker, this, that, and the other thing. They won't tell you about opportunities, you know, in your own division or tell you that you know if those opportunities do come up and you you ask for permission to apply or whatever depending on you know how your organization handles those things they'll deny you that right or they'll pull you back before you can set down roots in another position i work in a place where there's a whole bunch of umbrella groups all tied together and if i stay within the organization and i want to progress it's mostly by being loaned out to other departments until a permanent spot opens up so it's basically all contract work and then whoever owns your home position, right? Whoever that is, the manager in charge of that position has the capacity to basically dictate your future in many ways. Now there's lots of organizational policies in place that basically say, okay, you need to help people progress because that's an organizational goal. But a lot of, a lot of managers, well, I shouldn't say a lot of managers, some managers don't like to do that because they like things stable and they like to avoid having to do recruitment and all this other stuff. All right. Or getting people to integrate with their, with their teams and that type of stuff. Right. Because it depends on, it depends on the personalities that you have in your office, but once you have a good group of people, I mean, why do you want them to go away? You don't, but at the same time, as a manager, you have to recognize that if you don't allow people to go away and do other things, two things are going to happen. People are going to get upset because they're getting blocked and your office is going to stagnate because you're not bringing any new talent in. So I personally, I just think that it's extremely messed up, um, to have that mentality, to have that idea that, Oh no, I'm just going to keep everything the same. And people are just going to have to work the same job until they retire because that way I look good and I don't have to hire people or train people or worry about all that stuff, which is, I mean, unfortunately you're a manager, that's your job. Your job is to retain people. Your job is to hire people. Your job is to develop people and help them move up. And I mean, again, you know, if you've got an employee who obviously wants to do something else, what benefit are they going to be to your team? You know, you don't think people are going to talk. You don't think that employee is going to be motivated to do basically as little as possible until they can get out of there. That's how grudges start, right? You cut people off at the knees and all of a sudden they're going to remember that and they're not going to be happy. and that's not going to be good for anybody. But anyway, my my mentor basically taught me how to counteract that influence, how to prevent that from happening to me, and how to sort of work around those issues, right? So, and you can do that. So, these are the strategies, right? You can do that by networking with other people in and outside of your normal work environment. Get to know the company hierarchy, you know, who's the boss of your boss if your boss is a problem. Are there managers who have more pull upstairs? Um, do you know anybody in their department? Can you, can you talk to them about, you know, what they're looking for? Because again, good managers are always looking for good people. And if you can create those, those connections, even if they're just tangential, it's kind of like cold calling and saying, Hey, look, um, I'm interested in working in your area. What do you need? What do you want? What do you got? Right. Here's who I am. Can you use this? And if not, what do I need to develop? So it's hard. It sucks. But at the same time, it's, it's very valuable having those connections. Special projects can get your name out and about, right? If your boss is big on, oh, you just got to put your time in and da 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 da, look for opportunities where you can put your stamp or your name on something that goes outside the bounds of your regular position. So if there's a a learning opportunity or something that doesn't require you to leave the office, but you can work on, say, a, a project, a paper, a process, whatever it is that helps the organization in some way, that's a good way to you know make your name a known entity, right? Conversations between managers do happen and especially if you're in a mentorship program, mentors will often mention you to someone they know as a prospective hire because they know who you are, they know what you're capable of, they know what you're interested in, they've seen how you react to their feedback and that type of thing. And so they say, "Oh, you know, I can identify this person as a pretty positive individual. Let's see if there's a place where I can I can help them progress to." Outside of work, you can always do courses, you can always volunteer you can build your skills outside of that environment if you don't want to put more effort into a place that just doesn't value you. You can, you can build those skills outside and then you pad out your resume and you pad out your CV, whatever it is, and all of a sudden you, you open more doors. So I think maybe the biggest thing I learned through this whole process, both sides of it, was the psychology of it all. You know, the psychology of office politics and how to stay out of them or clear of them and how not to get any of that on you the importance of attitude, honesty, and integrity, work ethic, the difference between speaking your mind and speaking meaningfully or dropping pretenses when it matters, right? Not everything you say is going to be gold. So you have to kind of pick your battles and not everything that you like or dislike needs to be mentioned. But at the same time, it's important to know when you can drop the persona and just be, just be real and be who you are. And you know, sometimes that means being blunt and brutally honest. And sometimes it means just kind of saying, look, you know, I like this idea because it moves us in the right direction. There's different ways you can do it. And honestly, you got to pick very carefully what hills you want to fight on. If, if they're like, oh, we're going to change this po- practice or policy or whatever. It's like, all right, whatever. You know, it's just more work, but that's, that's what jobs are. So being negative in the office is often it's seen and heard in a much wider circle than you imagine it to be if that makes any sense. Anyway, so that was my experience. And in terms of, you know, benefits, right? Because that's one of the things I really wanted to talk about. What benefits are there beyond what I get out of it? So if we talk about sort of universal goodness, right? What you and your mentor or mentee can get out of this experience. And again, this applies both inside and outside of work. So don't think of this conversation as just applicable to professional environments, even though that's kind of what I'm talking about here it's great for hobbies. It's great for talents. You know, if you want to learn how to do woodworking, if you want to learn how to sing, if you want to learn how to play an instrument, if you want to learn how to draw, if you want to learn a trade or something like that. I mean, think about, think about skilled trades, right? That's completely slipped my mind when I was preparing this, but ultimately they're built on mentorship. Like that's what the apprenticeship journeyman master relationships are, right? And I think probably in entertainment as well. I listened to a couple of stand-up comedy podcasts and, and I think experienced comics generally talk about how they give notes to younger performers or they're getting notes from people backstage or how they used to get notes when they were younger and that type of thing, but also just bringing along an up and comer on tour and having them open and that type of thing, right? That's, that's real world experience in the big leagues, but that is a mentorship. So it's, it's kind of amazing how universal this can be. And again, just how much it can push you forward and give you that next level set of skills. But anyway, back to the benefits. So one thing that I found is advocating for someone or being advocated for, you know, so someone actually taking an interest in me and wanting that, like my skill sets or whatever to improve, it's a huge talent and confidence booster for everybody. Because on the one hand, the person who's doing the advocating for is building up another person and saying, you know what, I'm paying this forward. And that's kind of a great feeling. And then the person who's having all that done on their behalf is, is feeling like, wow, I'm actually worth something, right? You can also learn leadership skills and leadership styles just through osmosis, through watching how people do their work, how they lead their teams, how they deal with conflict or office politics or how they deal with morale, the environment that people work in and how they deal with problems that come up on a day-to-day basis, right? Right you can improve communication skills. You can learn how to deliver feedback in a way that is not crushing or detrimental to the person receiving the feedback. You can get better at just communicating with higher level people, get kind of the nerves out of it. You learn how to ask better questions. You become a better listener. You get exposure to new and different perspectives that can drive innovation, right? I mean, if you stagnate, if you never expose yourself to new people or new ideas, you're always going to think within the box you're familiar with, right? You need their box. You need the other chunk of skills and experience so that you can sort of venture outside your own and see what's out there. Nothing nothing does well in a vacuum. You can grow your personal network. I mean, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. More people who know you, who are interested in your prospects is always a good thing. You can learn how to do goals, how to set goals. You can learn how to accomplish goals. You can learn how to timeline them and build up a process so that you can you can break it down into manageable chunks you get an increased chance of promotion or job satisfaction you can reinvigorate your career or you can invigorate your interest in a in a in a subject you know whether you're learning about history or whether you're learning dance or basically anything right whether you're learning how to do public speaking all of these skill sets that involve other people that involve people teaching you how things are done or their methodology so that you can take what resonates with you and build your own skill set. So yeah, you can build those things up and like I said, get better at accomplishing your goals. Now, the other thing is is that you can actually reduce your levels of anxiety about the future. If you think about it, right? If you're talking to a senior a more senior person who's been down the road you you're walking right now already and they're telling you that there's light at the end of the tunnel and they're showing you how to get there that gives you a path it gives you hope and i don't know about you but hope is everything in a job where your your options appear limited hope for the future is massive and then finally personal fulfillment just the satisfaction of seeing someone who's junior to you progress or junior learners or whatever you want to call them finding fulfillment in the journey right so if you're the mentor You see their development and you can look at that and say, well, I had a part in that. And as a mentee, just the fact that you're able to do it and learn and experience and grow, like generally speaking, I find great fulfillment in both of those things. So there's definitely large benefits to both individuals and to groups. And that's like productivity, motivation, retention, commitment, you know, whatever, whatever it is you're doing, it all works, you know, whether it's professional or personal doesn't matter. The more interconnected people feel and the more information and direct control they have, I think the better everyone does. Top to bottom, whether you're the band leader or the tuba in the back, it does not matter. Everybody grows by being part of that process. And there's there's a saying that I've that I've heard before, be careful who you step on today because they may be connected to the ass you have to kiss tomorrow. And it's kind of a version of what goes around comes around. But it's true. You never know who you're going to have to work for in the future. And if you cut someone off and they get around you and they progress and they eventually become your boss, what do you think they're going to do to you when they get there? Like, How happy are they going to be with you for having tried to wreck their career? Because again, if you take the opposite view and you say, okay, well, this person could progress, so I'm going to help them develop. Let's say they do climb the ladder. They may not climb the ladder and, you know, it may turn out to be nothing, but at least they'll have a more positive view of you. But if they do climb the ladder, they're going to remember that you helped them. And that is a powerful motivator and a powerful memory. So food for thought, right? And again, I I always like come back to the idea of like, imagine if we didn't have to step on anyone and instead we just kind of build our own networks of people who think well of us and of whom we think well, who we help and who help us. There's something universal about this experience, and I think it works to everyone's advantage if we participate in this kind of exercise. So if you have the chance to be a mentor or be mentored, whether it's a program at work or just through a volunteer organization, if you know someone who does something or knows something you want to learn about, sign up, ask, take the plunge. I don't know anyone who's gotten where they are without help from somebody, and it's important to remember that. And likewise, it's important to remember that mentorship can open those doors. Anyway, I think I've rambled on about that probably enough. So what do you think about mentorship? You know, have you had the opportunity? Have you benefited from the experience? Is it something you're interested in? Or did it just not work? Like, have I missed something in my discussion? You can send your questions or your comments to okay at gmail.com. And again, if they are relevant and pertain to the conversation, you may very well hear them on the air and we'll go from there. All right, moving on before we get into the review of the patron saint of plagues. Uh, tip of the day is to stretch. Oh my Lord, for the love of God, stretch. The older you get, the tighter your muscles get. And the more sedentary you are, especially if you work an office job like me, the harder it is to move and the less your flexibility, like the less of your flexibility is retained in the long term. So work on it, work on your body, keep it in some kind of shape, right? It doesn't have to be svelte. It doesn't have to be perfect, but just Work your cardio, work your flexibility, work your muscle strength a little bit. And believe me, the payoff when you're older will be massive. And yeah, stretching is a part of that. So limber up and take the five to 10 to 15 minutes a day just to do that. Because as someone with a back that sucks, I can tell you, I wish I had done that. So again, stretch. All right. And moving on to the Patron Saint of Plagues by Barth Anderson, published by Bantam Spectra in 2006. What can I say about this book? Um, Who knew working for the CDC could be so interesting? That's probably where I'd start. The author basically mixes elements of cyber and biopunk into a thriller set in an ultra-modernized version of Mexico City in the near future. So you're looking at massive wealth and sort of a technological renaissance, but also massive poverty and social inequity, right? Fertile ground for all sorts of discontent. Now, the elephant in the room is that the book is from 2006, so it qualifies as what I call an oldie but goldie because it's, you know, it's on the older side of of fiction. But at the same time, you know, as much as the science has evolved since this book was written, especially in the area of pandemics, unless you're a doctor or someone who does a lot of research in that area, and I don't just mean Googling things, I don't think you're really going to notice much at a whack here. In this novel's version of the near future, a viral pandemic explodes on the streets of Mexico City, leaving wholesale death and suffering in its wake while a team of doctors led by one Henry Stark, that last name Stark gets a lot of mileage, I think, in this day and age, desperately tries to figure out where it came from so they can create a vaccine. And it's got a lot of really good stuff here, right? It's got a dystopian dictatorial government, a messianic nun with an army of discontented followers and a shadowy killer bent on unleashing a genocidal plague. Now this book takes a hard look at human augmentation and genetically modified viruses, and the potential for targeting people based on those augmentations. It's about racism, colonialism, and backlash to a changing world, and how that can be a deadly combination in the wrong hands. It also highlights something we see a lot of, right? A callous disregard for anyone caught in the crossfire. I think the author effectively weaves a plot through corrupt government institutions, introduces agents who may or may not be working in concert with the main character, and just really kept me turning pages with vibrant scenes and characters and action, medical drama, tension, and really the question at the heart of the book, right? Which is who is responsible for all of this? What stuck with me, and I mean, I've reread it recently, is that the main character, this Henry Stark, doesn't just have to deal with a pandemic. He's trying to save ordinary people's lives. He's fighting bureaucracy, willful ignorance, corruption, and age-old demons of any stratified society. Wealth, class, ethnic origin, religion, and old-fashioned sociopathy. Despite being published so long ago, I think this book holds up pretty well today. While the science behind the vaccines has changed and we've recently learned how global response to pandemics is going to unfold, I don't think you're going to notice that unless you're an epidemiologist or someone in the medical field. If you're just a regular person like me, you know, this is good stuff. And I highly recommend this book. I'd give it like four and a half out of five. And I mean, you know, it's out of print, but you can find the ebook online. So it's not that hard to get a hold of. If you can get a printed version of it, that's awesome. But I don't know that you're going to have much luck because again, it's, it's old and I don't think it's been reprinted. So take that for what it's worth. All right, and with that, we've come to the part of the podcast where I read a chapter from my novel Lancet available basically wherever you can buy books, but probably the best place to get it is on Amazon. There's a link in the description below. There's a link in the description below. So if you want to support the podcast or just read ahead, by all means, pick up a copy. Believe me, I'm not going to complain about that. Okay, so I'll be back in just a moment with Chapter 2. And I'm back with Chapter 2, 6 hours and 41 minutes later. My butt's numb. The cabin is feeling claustrophobic and my feet are slowly turning into ice cubes. Rubbing my eyes clears away some of their scratchiness. The autopilot is unreliable. It drifts to the left at about 1 degree per kilometer before correcting with a jolt. Definitely not something I can fix on the fly, so I've had to keep a close eye on my waypoints. But we outran the storm a couple of hours ago, and the sun's a white-hot ball hanging low on the horizon. So it's not all bad. Dad made me take Evelyn. I have no idea where he found a quadruped spiderbot out here, but the high-speed rotaries we rigged to her feet can handle the terrain. Fast, nimble, and very much illegal. She's got multi-jointed legs, and a flattened teardrop body that tapers towards the rear. We saved weight by removing the interlocking armor plates and replacing them with insulation. Tearing out weapon mounts gave us space to squeeze in a cot, microwave and a small coffee table in the back. We've even put a thin layer of padding over the floor. As for Gracie's job, turns out an errant meteor reduced one of her sensor posts to charred debris. The odds of that had to be ridiculous. I shouldn't have told Gracie. She's a geology buff and demanded I collect samples. Made me look for the space rock. So I spent a good half hour scanning for iron and silicates before I found the damn thing. A fist-sized chunk of slag hiding under half a meter of refreeze. Space junk. Not a real meteorite. Gracie is going to hate that. Evelyn slows to a crawl. Normally losing one post in a sensor net wouldn't make a difference, but this is a new offshoot and there's no redundancy, which means I need to manually reset the next link in the chain. I pull my boots on as we coast to a stop. It's a scramble to get outside. Cold eats at my cheeks, and the world dims as my lenses polarize, blocking out the harsh light before my pupils contract to pinpricks. Trails of fine snow drift around my legs, finding and filling my shallow footprints. The wind never stops out here. It just scours the ice packing the fresh snow down until it's crunchy. Otherwise, it's deathly quiet. Empty. I mutter against the isolation as much as the cold, complaining to myself as I clip onto Evelyn's winch line. Fissures and glacial ice can hide anywhere, and I'm not keen on dying at the bottom of a hole. I make my way over to the post and brush off the access panel. My fingers burn as I plug in my fab. A moment is all it takes to run the diagnostics and find, surprise, everything's fine. Calm's restored. I trudge back the way I came. Freaking waste of... I stop staring at the sky. A star's falling. Just a faint spark kicking up a vapor trail. But it's coming in at a hard angle and getting bigger. Fast. I patch my visor into the cameras above Evelyn's cockpit and get them tracking on the object. Zoom into maximum. That is not a star. My stomach flip-flops. Ship. No one pulls re-entry that steep. Not when they have a choice. There's white fire licking her nose, the kind that finds the tiniest cracks in the insulation and incinerates you from the inside. But it's shedding speed fast. The fire winks out and turns into black smoke. I can't move as it screams past overhead, sonic booms rumbling like thunder. Evelyn's targeting laser pings its hull. Altitude and speed show up on my visor. Its drop rate is obscene, but not necessarily fatal, as long as the thruster pods are lit up and breaking, at least trying to keep the descent stable. Something explodes, and a chunk of fuselage spirals off. I flinch as my goggles are too late to save me from the flash. The ship lurches as it disappears over the horizon. The sound of impact hits me 15 seconds later, and then it's all quiet as if the trail of dark smoke overhead is a lie. 181, you tracking that? I'm on comms and back in my driver's seat before making any conscious decision. I bring up the video and use it to plot the crash vector. Tracking what? I just saw a ship come down burning. I don't mean to shout. Evelyn spits out the estimated crash site. Impact about 18 kilometers north of me. Will confirm. Someone's asleep at the radar station. For a ship to come in on a north-south line, I don't know, control failure? I push that thought away. I'm outbound to check for survivors, unlikely given the crash numbers. But I don't say that. Our landing system should have been all over that thing. Even an empty shell with no power signature, transponder, or hint of life would likely still trip an alert. The way that thing was burning up, engines firing, had to show up somewhere. Sending you what I have. I dump raw data from Evelyn's sensor array and wince at the transmission size. Military hardware. It only takes a second for control to catch up to me. Once they see what I've seen, there's only one possible response. I'm patching you through to OWLAC. I've plotted new waypoints. The topographical data for this area isn't that old. But I still need to be careful. A flood of information splashes across my screen. Acceptable thresholds and color-coded landscape. White marks the safest route. Red not so much. I hit the accelerate and Evelyn leaps. rotary ripping through snow until traction catches up and we bolt forward. I've got the throttle wide open. Push back into my seat. We hit 100 kph in a couple of seconds and keep accelerating. Evelyn doesn't labor. I'm organizing search and rescue. Diverted a satellite so you'll have overhead in seven minutes. Gracie is busy. I can tell from her clipped tone. I'll be on site by then. Instruments say I've hit 160. The lead rotaries are kicking up grainy clouds that the wipers brush away, leaving frozen streaks on the glass. At this speed, Evelyn's so low to the ground I can practically feel the snow skimming underneath. That dark cloud of smoke keeps growing larger as she eats distance. I'm picking my path based on old data and instinct, and that's exhilarating and dangerous and so, so stupid. I haven't strapped in, but two minutes is all I need and Evelyn is smooth as silk on the ice, rocking gently as she transfers inertia from one foot to the other, stabilizing automatically against the sudden dips and turns. Something I can be proud of. The autopilot might not work properly, but I've spent six months tuning her movement routines. Priam, I hardly hear Gracie's voice. You crash and this gets worse. Pull it back. Instantly, I feel like an overreactive kid and let up on the juice. White steam and gray combustion are billowing up from the ice field ahead of me. I see the crash site, about two and a half kilometers out. Hold at five hundred. I want to fly over before you approach. Smart. That crash generated a lot of energy. If the ship augured in, the ice could look like a cracked window. Between the impact force and heat, one wrong step and I could disappear into the slush. I might have to wait hours for the radial fractures to stabilize. How's the storm? It's coming in behind me. You've got about an hour before whiteout. I stop at 500 meters, practically at the edge of the debris field. The ship struck a glancing blow, carved a trough a few hundred meters long. It's half buried at the far end, but from what I can tell, it's more or less intact. Are you getting this? Every sensor I have is pointed at the site, measuring, reading, analyzing, sniffing for radiation, poison gas, and dangerous biochem signatures. None of the really nasty stuff's showing up, so at least the core is still contained. We are. I fidget as I wait for the satellite to pass overhead and Gracie to give me the go-ahead. I zoom in on the wreck, an old gunship with unknown markings. It's not broadcasting anything, so I have no idea whether life support's still kicking. Running the serials comes up empty, but that's just our local database. It'll take time to query the wider universe. Gracie will probably send a dart. The orbital station punches them out once or twice a day, depending on demand. Hard to believe it's cheaper to send a physical package through an FTL jump than maintaining synchronous data in an entangled server, but there it is. Hopefully we'll get a hit from Agincourt. If there's a record on this ship, the docking authority there should be able to tell us about it. Priam, you're clear, but take it slow. Thanks. Gracie has sent me a summary. A quick glance tells me there are a few high-temperature areas to avoid. No radiation or deadly gases. No hazardous contaminants. Ground is stable. I guide Evelyn around the marked off areas just to be safe. Nothing changes. No ping from the transponder or comms traffic. Ship's dead silent, derelict, which means I'm more likely to find a pack of corpsicles inside and that has my skin crawling because I've seen frozen bodies before. People die out here by accident or just bad luck. I can't get a connection. Am I okay to plug and play? I'm going by the book, go ahead. I start recording once I'm back out into the cold. My visor doesn't capture the cleanest audio and video, but I'd still like my perspective on record. And I can push an extra copy into my fab without eating too much memory. Maybe I can sell the footage. My snowshoes help as I cross the uneven ground. But dragging an emergency sled ruins the advantage. The ship must be 40 meters from stem to stern. A sleek machine built to blow shit up. Not so much anymore. The engine nacelles are gone and its belly's ripped open. Hold breach. There'll be money in that salvage, if I can lay claim. Not the time for that kind of thinking. Close up, I can't see any viable access points. I circle around the wreck and climb up on the bank she's dug into. Some of the snow slows off as I climb higher. Fair warning to stay back. Hull's still warm, but I only need to make it about halfway before I start digging for an airlock. All right, that's the podcast, everybody, so I'll catch you next time. Until then, have a great day.